hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, today we have a bonus episode in which we are answering all your burning questions and getting Emily to have a look at those comps for you as well. So we're going to kick it off today with our first question from a listener and then we're going to ask Carly to answer that. Hi, Bianca, Cece and Carly. Thanks so much for making this podcast and providing a space for us to ask questions. I have a historical novel set in Nazi Germany that is, needless to say, fairly dark. A publishing professional has suggested to me that the reason I'm not having success with my querying so far may be timing, that agents and editors don't want dark books right now, and they're especially tired of World War II. My novel is set in an unusual secretive program that almost no one has heard of, so I thought perhaps with a unique concept, it stood a chance. But am I wasting my time by querying agents when they won't be picking up something like this because of the subject matter? Thank you. Ooh, this is a very good question. This is a very tricky one. So yes, I will say there is a lot of World War II fatigue. I will absolutely say that. Editors have sent me 
wish lists and it sometimes will say historical. I'm looking for everything except World War II for a couple of reasons, right? Number one, a lot of them already have their historical, you know, World War II author, right? Like a lot of these authors are, you know, brand-based authors. They're doing a book a year, that sort of thing. So they're not looking for new World War II authors because there's so many authors writing in this space. I don't think it's proven yet whether the market is fatiguing on these because this is some of the interesting things about trends, right? Sometimes it's like, as an industry, we see so much of something and we feel fatigued, but sometimes it's like consumers are still buying it. So I don't think we're seeing consumer fatigue yet. I do think we're feeling industry fatigue. So my client, Jane Healy, she's publishing a book called Goodnight from Paris. That is a World War II book. It's coming out this year. It's set up to do really well. So I think there's still obviously some opportunity there, but this is a struggle. I will say, I think you really need to think about whether you want to debut in a category that is so heavy right now in terms of like, you know, just authors writing in that space. It's definitely something you're you're going to want to you're going to want to think about pretty, pretty seriously. Great, Carly. Thank you. OK, here's the second question and we're going to ask Cece to answer it for us. First of all, in addition to all the usual reasons people love your show, I wanted to say that it's thanks to you that I come across amazing books that would otherwise not be on my radar. As a Canadian living in Turkey, I don't get to browse bookstores, etc. the way I used to. So thank you for that. My question is this. When, if ever, is it okay to pitch an unfinished book to an agent? I'm writing a memoir about my grandmother's extraordinary life and how my search to discover more about her led to me finding a kind of peace in my own life. I've been published in an anthology of essays and in the Globe and Mail's first person column and some other online publications, but I have never written a book before. Thank you again. Okay, so yay, because we love recommending books. Okay, that's a good question. So pitching an unfinished book is tricky. So usually that's a no-no. Agents do expect a finished book from a debut author. However, some nonfiction projects are sold on proposal. And as a reminder, a proposal is a business plan for the publisher tackling, yes, the businessy things, marketing and publicity plans, author's platform and connections, but also sample chapters, which means the whole thing has not been written yet. And memoirs are nonfiction. So yes, as a debut, you are allowed to submit a proposal to agents. I have signed debut memoirists on proposal. I've signed debut memoirists with actually nothing written and we just worked on the proposal together. And then I sold their projects. So it does happen. But I want to acknowledge that it's a lot more common for writers with platforms, whether that's a large social media following or essays and articles that went viral. But again, does it happen? Do you have to? Sure, like you're, you're allowed to do that. And does it happen for authors without a platform? Again, yes, but here's the thing. It typically makes it harder. And that's because any memoir has to be really unique and really universally appealing for an agent to take it on, right? And without seeing that on the page, because it has to be appealing on the page, not as a concept, not as an idea only. Without seeing that on the page, it's a huge risk. So I want you to know that I understand your question. I understand where you're coming from. I teach a course called From Memories to Memoir turning your life's journey into a book. And by far the number one question that comes out of that course is, I don't want to write the whole thing before signing with an agent. Is that okay? So yes, it's fine, but I don't think it's necessarily in your best interest unless you have that platform because it makes it harder. If it were me, if I were writing my memoir, I would just write the whole thing. That's what I would do. 
Thanks, Cece. Yeah, I think years ago we were hearing about debut novelists who were selling on proposals. I, I think it was Marion Keyes who actually sold her debut novel based on her first three chapters. But I think the days of that for fiction authors is, is long gone. Okay, next question for Carly. I have a question about trying to evaluate comps. I generally look at the number of reviews on Goodreads and Amazon to determine how well a book sold. Do you have a number that you think is well? like a thousand reviews, 5,000 reviews, or a number that's too many, or any other way for writers to determine how well something sold. Thank you so much for doing this. You guys are the best. All right. So yes, I agree. You know, evaluating those comps based on Goodreads and Amazon reviews is a good idea. We were doing our deep dive series and our first guest was Tara Singh Carlson. And she actually recommended that you guys, when you're looking for comps to use those kind of ratings on Amazon to help you. So in terms of what is a good number? So I did a little bit of digging around on Amazon to kind of figure out maybe what would be a good number for you guys. So I think you're looking for something between starting like a starting point of about 5,000 to 10,000 in reviews is a good starting point in terms of like the star ratings and then something that might be too many so like as in like a mega bestseller is more like a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand star ratings so that would be something where that probably isn't a comp so that hopefully gives you guys a bit of a, a ballpark there thank you Carly. okay next question and we'll ask cc to answer it for us hello thank you so much for answering my question i am trying to see if you are supposed to like the comp titles that you are comping for your book. I was reading a particular book recently and I didn't really like it at all, but a lot of the concepts were like the same in my book and it was like a very close comp. So am I supposed to like the books that I comp or is it okay to not like them? Okay, gosh, now I want to know why you don't like it. Is it because the writing wasn't strong enough for your taste? Is it because the character didn't feel believable? I'm just super curious now. Okay, so are you supposed to like your comp titles? I'll admit to being a purist when it comes to this. So ideally, yeah, you love your comps, especially since so much of this is subjective, meaning a matter of taste. And when you compare your book to another book without liking it, you could maybe be missing out on a connection with an agent who shares your taste and also didn't like that comp. So ideally, I do more research to find that perfect comp that you do appreciate. But let's be honest, like let's say you do the research and you just don't find that comp, and then go for it. Make sure though to frame how your book is different. Make sure to say, my book is like this other book, but it's really different in this other thing. Because that way, if that other thing is also something that the agent who's reading it was like, oh yeah, I wish that other book had this other thing different, your book will stand out. Thanks, Cece. Yeah, what I find so funny as a writer is there are two other authors who my work gets compared to a lot. People on Goodreads will go, if you like so-and-so, you'll love this. And I cannot read either of those authors' books. I haven't been able to get past the first 15 pages of their books, and so I never understand it. But they're both amazing authors, and getting compared to them helps people pick up my books. So I'm like, that's great. What were you going to say, Carly? Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's a book that gets comped to a lot, and I rejected that book, <laughs> like as a query. And so, but I liked the idea of it, right? Like I liked it enough to like request it and read it, but eventually passed on it. So that one's always so interesting. So whenever I see that one comp to, which it's comp to a lot, I am so curious because I'm like, is it about like, is that book like the things that I enjoyed about it? Or is it like the things I didn't? So yeah. And I read that book and I loved it. 
So there, there you go, right? Like total subjective matter. And when I found out you rejected it, I was like, what? <laughs> Did you hit your head against a wall or something? Like, it's just too subjective. I know, it's so funny. And we keep saying that to our listeners how subjective it is. And, and this is proof of that. Okay, next question. And we'll ask Carly to answer that for us. Hello, I love your podcast so much. I hope this isn't a strange question, but if structure is really important to the story you're telling, like, for example, if in the first half of your novel, you want your char- this character to be seen in a certain way by the reader, and then in the second half, that will kind of get blown up a little bit, how do you imagine conveying that in a query? Do you have to spell that out intentionally? Because I feel like that will take away from you being able to tell more about the story slash plot in the query. All right. I found this one pretty tricky. So I did a little bit of research for you. And because I think the one book that stands out to me when you talk about like, you know, first half of a book, you know, and then there's a big flip. I just think of Gone Girl. But you can't cop to Gone Girl, speaking of cops. And then I went back and I read the cover copy or the jacket copy online for Gone Girl. And it doesn't mention like, you know, halfway through there's a, a big flip in terms of the structure. So that leads me to believe that you should write it without explaining maybe the big structural switch again so that you know we're surprised when we read the book you could say something like this book has unique structure or a clever structure right like I think you can allude to it but I wouldn't spell it out I I don't know that that's what my gut says yeah I feel like because then the agent's expecting it and then it doesn't pack the kind of punch that you wanted to it's the same as Kay McIntosh's I let you go you know, if you didn't know that that big thing was coming, boy, it was a sucker punch. But if you knew about it, every page you were looking for it, and I don't think it landed then quite as as she wanted it to. Another book to look at is Counterfeit. It's doing really well, and it's more recent. And it also has a huge twist that you don't see coming and a really clever structure. So that's also a good example to take a look at the jacket copy of. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, here's our next question, which we'll ask Cece to answer. Hello, I'm an indie writer in Atlanta, Georgia. My question is, when you use Query Tracker to submit a query, do you have to put all the pertinence in the query letter, such as genre, word count, bio, and all that? Because in Query Tracker, there are places for those items. So I wasn't sure if, you put all that in in the query letter in addition to what you put in in Query Tracker. Thank you. So we don't use querying software at PS Literary. We just use email. But in my previous agency, I did use Query Manager. So I'll answer based on that experience. Yes, you should still include all the metadata in the query letter, even if you have like specific fields where that is also being asked. There's no harm in having it in both places, especially since the agent might just use the form in Query Manager as a data gathering tool. So for example, to see how many memoir submissions you got that year, or to see how many submissions in the such and such word count range, they might not be reading it when they open the query letter. They might not be having that that kind of visualization. So, so yeah, I would just include it. There's no harm. Thank you, Cece. Okay, the next one I will answer. Hi, Cece, Carly and Bianca. I'm writing a dual POV YA rom-com, and while I know the convention of the YA genre is to write in first person, 
I want to write in third person for a couple of reasons. So the first is, I think, especially for dual POV or multi-POV, writing in the third person just helps so much with readability and remembering whose head you're in. And then the second and most important is I actually started writing in first person and then I felt like I couldn't get close enough to my characters. So I tried in third person and I thought it made such a difference not only with getting closer to my characters but also with just elevating the writing in general and my manuscript is so much better now that it's in third person so my question is is it okay to break this genre convention and write in third person or would this be a deal breaker thanks so much Right. Thanks for that question, Susie. My answer here is that what agents and editors are looking for is a really good story, really well told. And it doesn't matter what the conventions of the genre are. If you are deliberate in your choices when it comes to your manuscript, if you are saying, I am writing it in this particular point of view for reasons X, Y, and Z, and it makes this project shine at a level that another point of view wouldn't be able to, then you've thought it through and you're doing it for a reason. I'm always nervous when writers submit something and I say to them, why is this in first person past or why is this in third person present? And they go, oh, that's the point of view I like writing. And that always makes me nervous. But every story, you know, there's there's a way in which to tell it in the best possible way. And if you're doing it with intentionality and you feel that the third person in this instance is doing the project justice, then you go ahead and you do that. Stick to your guns. Okay, next question. And we'll ask Carly to answer that for us. Hi, ladies. I had a question about manuscript requests. I got a full request from a dream agency. They requested right before the holiday break, and I haven't heard back from them yet. I'm wondering when the appropriate time is to follow up. Thanks. Love the pod so much. Well, first of all, congratulations on getting a request from your dream agency. That's always so exciting, and I know how thrilling that can be. So in terms of when to follow up, first thing you're going to do is just go to the website of that agency. They will tell you probably when it is appropriate to follow up. If there is not information on their website about when it is appropriate to follow up, I would say, obviously, when you get another offer of rep, you know, from somebody else, you could follow up. Obviously, that's the main time you're going to follow up. But otherwise, really, you're not going to be following up for like three to six months. And it's only because they probably just haven't got to it yet. It's not because they're humming and hawing about it or they're trying to lead you on. It's really just the queue for reading might just be that long. So unfortunately, there might be a bit of a waiting game, but congratulations. That's great news for you. Thanks, Carly. Yes. And as a writer, I see exactly where you guys are coming from. The wait is sometimes the worst part. I would rather write 10 novels than sit and wait three months to hear if somebody liked my work or if a project's going to get picked up. And it's horrible. But here's the thing, even once you get published, there are going to be times that you have to wait for ages. So maybe it's a good thing to get in a bit of that practice up front. Okay, Cece, the next one, we'll ask you to answer it. Hello. When you have parts in your novel, like part one, part two, part three, do you change the font of when you're writing out part one, part two, and part three? When you submit pages, is it meant to be bigger or bold? Thanks. This is an easy peasy one. So use the same font and formatting as you're using for your chapter headings. So whenever you write chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, use the same font and format. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next question, and we'll ask Carly to answer this for us. Hi, love the podcast. 
I have a question about how many authors an agent might represent at any given time and how many manuscripts the agent might be dealing with just in terms of representation. I know this could really vary. Just curious. Thank you. This is a great question. And I feel like this is a bit of a myth debunker. So I might talk for a little while about this one. So I mean, at at any given time, I probably have anywhere from between zero to five client manuscripts. So there are weeks that go by where I just you know, I don't have anything for my clients, which, you know, I'm doing other things, obviously. The most manuscripts I I have at one time in terms of clients is probably five, like at the very most, maybe even like three to four. And I think what's important to note is that I, as an agent, you know, every agent has their own style in terms of how many clients they represent and, and what type of genres. So I do about half fiction, half nonfiction, but I do have 60 clients, like six zero, right? And so that sounds like a lot. You might hear 60 clients. She's emailing with 60 people a day or something like that, right? But no, because everybody's working at their own pace and their own time on their own projects. And really, I think something maybe more to judge it by is, you know, in any given year, I'm selling maybe between six and 12 projects and between any given year, six and 12 books of my clients come out into the world. So that's kind of more of the pace where that's kind of what I'm what I'm focusing on. Obviously, I'm like I'm reading all these client manuscripts, but in terms of like how much emailing I'm doing and how much reading I'm doing, it's so inconsistent that it's really hard to to give a solid answer about that. And every agent has their own flow and, and you know, ways that they communicate with their clients about, you know, when to send the manuscript. So I feel like this is a hard one to answer in terms of any generalizations, but you know, that that's the way that I work. Also, you know, some of my clients are only going to write one book in their whole career, but I still consider them a client, right? They were an expert on X topic and they wrote one book or, you know, they might write two books in their career, right? And they might be my client for 20 years or 30 years. Do you know what I mean? So I'm still managing things for them in terms of, you know, the royalty statements or any requests that come in for them. So they are still a client on the books in terms of my client list, but the really active clients that I'm spending a lot of time communicating with tends to be either my fiction clients, because, you know, we are doing multiple drafts and multiple rounds of revisions usually of those materials. And the other time I'm really talking to my clients a lot is when we're on sub. You know, we're in the middle of negotiating a deal, right? We're talking multiple times a day, multiple times a week. So that flow is is really different depending on the season of the year and, and what's going on. So that's kind of an example of, of some of my workflow. Thank you, Carly. It's making me think of how they say that if a bunch of women live together, their menstrual cycles all sync up. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if you're an agent and all your writers' creativity cycles sync up and they all finish their novel at the same time, I think that must be damn, damn stressful. Have you ever had that happen? where a whole bunch just came in at the same time and you weren't expecting them? Yes and no. Some of them will say, you know, hey, I'm finishing up a, I'm finishing up a draft. You know, are you, you know, what's your cue like kind of coming up? Or some of them will say, hey, slot me in for like this week because like that's when it's coming. So some of them will try to preempt it a little bit. And I know the waiting game is no fun, right? And so sometimes I will, and I've said this before, but I do a lot of my reading at night, right? So it's like I'm emailing during the day. I'm Zooming during the day. I have all like my work to do during the day. And then at night I do a lot of reading and I'm a pretty fast reader. So I will usually read a manuscript in about five hours. So sometimes like if I sit down, you know, seven or eight at night, depending on my kids or go to bed, you know, I might be able to power through a draft of a manuscript. And so I think there's also a difference between reading a client manuscript and editing a client manuscript. When I edit, I'm also like, sometimes I print out a draft, you know, I I physically like mark it up and then I have to go back and integrate my notes and transcribe them into track changes. So 
you know, there's so many different things that go into the reading of a manuscript. Sometimes it's more of an edit and all of those things are dependent on a million different factors. But no, I've never had, I don't think I've ever had more than five drafts in my inbox from clients at one time, but knock on wood, because I'm sure now I'm going to get like seven today. Murphy's Law. Right. Okay. This is our last question and I'm going to answer this one. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. In looking for a more effective way to tell my story, I recently changed from third-person close single POV to omniscient. But here's my problem. I'm not quite sure how to differentiate between omniscient POV and third-person multi. I'm hoping you can dig a little deeper into the subtleties of these different points of view because I don't want to be accused of head-hopping. Thank you so much for your podcast. I learn something new each time I listen. Best. Right. So good question. I need for you to think about this in terms of third person close means that we are following just one character, right? We're not writing them in first person. We're doing it in third person, but the whole book is about that character, what they see, what they experience, etc. If you're writing omniscient, you as the narrator author as narrator, or perhaps a character in the book is almost godlike. They are privy to the thoughts, the emotions of multiple characters at once. You know, they, they're looking down and they know all of these things that are happening, not just to one character, but everybody. So read books like Still Life by Sarah Winman. Read books like Lessons in Chemistry. In those books, the author went from describing one character's thoughts and feelings to describing the dog or the parrot's thoughts and feelings on the matter. That is omniscient. And that can lead to head hopping. But if you're writing third person multi-POV, you can have one chapter from one character's perspective, the next chapter from another character's perspective. And you can alternate that way. And that's how you stop yourself from head hopping. But if you are writing omniscient and you find yourself within the space of three paragraphs, jumping between character X's head and thoughts to characters Y's feelings to character Z, that is when you are potentially head hopping and that might be problematic for the reader, depending on how you're doing it. Remember, Sarah Winman did it phenomenally well in Still Life and Bonnie did it really, really well in Lessons in Chemistry as well. So check out those books to see how they did that. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hello everyone. It's Carly Waters here from the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. And I am taking over for Bianca today because I am doing the author interview today. I wanted to feature some of my clients this year. I have a number of clients with books coming out and we just thought it would be great to, to have a little kind of client agent interview style. So I'm so excited for you guys to be officially introduced to one of my clients. So this is Lindsay Wong. She is the author of the critically acclaimed award-winning and best-selling memoir, The Woo Woo, which was a finalist for Canada Reads in 2019. She's also written a young adult novel titled My Summer of Love and Misfortune that was with Simon & Schuster. She also has a short story collection that we are going to be excitedly talking about called Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality is out with Penguin Canada. Lindsay holds a BFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia and an MFA in literary nonfiction from Columbia University in New York. She currently teaches creative writing at the University of Winnipeg. You can follow her on Twitter, Lindsay M. Wong, or Instagram, lindsaywong.m, or visit lindsaywongwriter.com. Lindsay, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and chat with you. 
Yes. And I should have added to the bio, Lindsay and I both are big candy lovers and we could eat candy for every meal. Mm -hmm. So we need to add that to the official bio. <laughs> yes. All right. So I first, wrote a book about candy. You want to write a book about candy? Well, there you go. My last question was going to be, Lindsay, what do you want to write next? And maybe we have to okay. bump a, a candy book up the list. Yeah. All right. So my first question is kind of, you know, just to, to tell the listeners about your short story collection. So tell us pleasant things about immortality. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so I wanted to write a horror book about immigration. But usually, you know, with short story collections about Asian families, it's really focused in reality. And so I wanted to take that language about, you know, the ghosts and monsters following us from country to country, and they come over and they haunt you. And sometimes these ghosts and monsters are actually real. And I play on that and uh, tell me pleasant things about immortality. I can't wait for everybody to read it so we can talk about it. But for now, I think this will just be a great introduction to you and your thinking and your mm -hmm. headspace and, and just how incredibly creative you are. So jumping off of that, I want to start with where does your ability to tap into the surreal come from? Because, you know, I can see where this inspiration came from, as you mm -hmm. just mentioned, but your imagination is just so unparalleled in this short story collection. We have zombies and demons and ghosts, and you get us to kind of suspend disbelief in, in such wonderful ways because you're such a master storyteller and there's a kind of supernatural mythology and fables that's really literary and also very page turning which I which I think is exciting so how did you let your mind travel so far into the surreal for this one well honestly I tend to really write about real life right I mean you want to do another memoir I'm sorry Carly and so I'll just take like, things that happen every day so I was in a residency in Nebraska City and we had to walk 10 miles on the highway to get groceries from Walmart. And I remember doing that trek every day and it just felt like the end of the world. It was January, it was minus 10. And so that became a story and tell me pleasant things about immortality where, you know, a mail order bride comes from Beijing and she brings apocalypse with her. And so for me, it's really just about taking the everyday and playing with extended metaphor. So I don't know if it's really being imaginative or surreal. It's just, you know, it feels like this. And so now I'm going to expand on it and it can become, you know, 30 pages of a short story collection. Yes. Okay. So this is all connecting the dots. Lindsay has this amazing, amazing imagination. I'm like, where does she come up with, where does she come up with all the ideas? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Trekking through the winter for groceries. No, I, I'm just trying to, to get away without writing nonfiction. That's why I'm like, I'm just going to add a metaphor. I'm going to add a simile here. <laughs> I can hide behind, you know. Hide behind the fiction and the way you can with nonfiction. Yes. Yeah. So speaking of kind of the nonfiction element, so there were some stories that were, I don't know if we want to call like loosely inspired by maybe some family history. You say, you know, there's the second Sino-Japanese invasion of China, kind of that's loosely covered. We have Japanese occupation. We have an uncle of yours who was in a concentration camp and barely survived the trip to Hong Kong. How was it hard to kind of gather all this family information and kind of figure out maybe how it would focus? Because it is a story of immigration, right? So mm -hmm. I'm just so curious about how all of that kind of informed the stories. Yeah. So when you, you know, talk to family members, they're going to tell you a bunch of different stories, right? Which is horrible and hard for memoir, but in fiction, you can kind of expand and, you know, collapse the truth. And in my family, there's always talk about ghosts and demons. And, and so people will say, and then something horrible happened. And, and, you know, he was killed by a demon. And in, in so many ways, people are speaking in metaphor or not metaphor. And so I was able to really just take what people were saying and take the stories about family and try to put them together because my grandmother had lived through, you know, this, um, this, you know, Japanese invasion of 
China and she talked about having to like bind her breasts to avoid being raped and she had to like chop wood and so all these stories just sort of became the characters for some of the some of the stories in the collection Mm -hmm, absolutely so by the end of each of these stories Mm -hmm. none of these characters kind of get what they want right they all have a goal none of them get what they want and the surrealism merges with this like really darkly comedic satire which as we kind of feel through the book you're really evoking a kind of social critique of our contemporary life so what is it about contemporary life that you wanted to critique through these fables Yeah, I I think a lot of contemporary life, it's ridiculous. A lot of absurd things happen. And, you know, if you're BIPOC or a woman of color or you're marginalized, terrible stuff happens, right? Every day is sort of like a horror movie. And and so, you know, I thought this is a perfect metaphor just to play on that. So, for example, you know, family can be horrible. And so in one of the stories, they find out that the dad is, is a serial killer and he's possessed by a stripper because... He's been hiding this horrible family secret. And and in so many ways, you know, you can see like the universal in these metaphors of horror. Mm-hmm. So coming back to the themes. So one of my questions for you was going to be around, you know, there there are a lot of themes that you're kind of covering throughout your body of work. And we kind of go mm-hmm. back and, and talk about all of that. But I think I want to get at like, what maybe do you find yourself continuing to come back to and explore as a writer, you know, like I think as you work on each project, whether it's the memoir, the the young adult novel, and now this, and I know you're working on some fiction into the future. So what is it that you kind of find yourself coming back to, to say, is it different for each book? Are you as a writer and as you grow, noticing these themes that you're starting to link together in your body of work? Yeah, I think I write a lot about mental health and how Asian families don't talk about it. And, but also I think in the collection of short stories, it was a lot about inherited trauma. We carry that in our bodies. We carry that in our stories. When we come from another country, we're still talking about it, right? And these are family stories that get perpetuated and family secrets. And I'm noticing that I'm always kind of leaning towards the idea of the secret dysfunctional family. I think my next novel, there's some family elements in it, but it's mostly about, you know, critiquing contemporary life about, you know, sisterhood and and the marriage ritual. So it's a little bit lighter, but at the same time, you know, I'm looking at culture from this very, I guess, a millennial lens. You know, I'm, I was like born in Vancouver and I never went to Asia until 2019. And so, you know, coming from that perspective where everyone's like, really, you never went, but I have this very like Eastern, but Western kind of outlook on, on my body of work. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, I guess, very first generation in some ways, yeah, but not. That's so interesting. So I want to get to your teaching as well. So I know you've kind of taught throughout your career. Mm-hmm. You've done lots of courses and webinars and you yourself have an MFA. So right now you're currently teaching creative writing at the University of Winnipeg. So what do you like about teaching? How does it serve your own writing? Do you find that it's great because it gives you a break from being in your own head? Or how do you kind of balance those two sides of your brain, the teaching and the writing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find teaching writing can be very rewarding. So often it's really just sitting down with a student talking about story, right? And that's what writers do, you know, we're in our heads, we're talking about craft. And so, you know, I find that I'm trying to explain a concept to someone, then I can think about my own work and be like, wait, you know, that's not working because of this, right? So I find it really rewarding. Um, and it's always such a great opportunity to see projects in different development and stages. And so for me, it's Either I'm talking about writing, then I'm going home to write, and then next day, it just, it's a great cycle, and it's really creative for me. 
Right. So one of the things when I am doing teaching, because I teach, you know, workshops and courses mm-hmm. and Lindsay and I both this year were at Surrey International Writers yes. Conference where we both got to teach at the same time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that when I am actually talking about the business, I actually talk about you because one of the things that that came up for us when we were pitching the woo woo which was your memoir was that there wasn't a lot of comps right and so on the podcast we talk a lot about comps when I'm talking about writing query letters we talk a lot about comps but you know the reality of the business but then I also talk about you know when you are a BIPOC author you might not have comps right because you might be the first to do something and so you were such a trailblazer with everything that you do but you know the woo was the first book that you had on the scene what did it feel like to kind of be be a trailblazer I think we can look back and be like yes you blazed a trail but at the time it's like you're kind of coming up against an industry where comps are part of the the ways that we fit into the business and so mm-hmm. how did that feel for you terrifying in many ways I think I did not think about comps until we had to send it out on submission I think the only book that I could think of was Running with Scissors, Augustine Burroughs, right? Dysfunctional Family, but they're obviously not Chinese. And then the other comp that we could think of was Battle Hymn of the Tiger, Tiger, Tiger's Mother. I'm, I'm getting the title messed up. And of course, my book is not like that at all, right? And so like, how do you do that? You just have to kind of hope that they see the elements of dysfunction from there. But yeah, it can be really challenging as a BIPOC writer to be like, well, how do I pitch this? No one has heard this story before, right? Because publishers and agents are always saying like, we want something new, but it should be familiar enough that we understand it. And you're like, well, what if I'm neither, right? If the voice is too strange or, you know, it doesn't sound white enough, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always felt like sometimes I have to help my authors kind of like tap dance in this way. It's mm-hmm. like we have to fit into what the expectations are and kind of like help this book perform in a way that stands out, but it's also familiar and it's not too frightening. But I think that what is so amazing about your work is that the work speaks for itself, you know, and that's what's always been so important about the way that I kind of pitch you and position you is like, just read the book. It's so great. You know, all all of your work really stands for itself. And that's why I consider you a trailblazer because you've always found your way because the writing is is phenomenal. And so that's what's so frustrating about comps is that we feel like we have to kind of do it this way, but there's so many other ways of doing it that are that are exciting. And you always stand out to me in that way. Well, I'm so lucky that you're my agent and you get it and you support me. But I mean, can we just say like to like other BIPOC writers, just read the book. It's it's on its own. Can they just do that? Or do we need to have comps? Like, yeah, that- I know. It's so, it's so interesting. So I think when I went back and looked at the actual pitch that I wrote for the Woo Woo, right. which for the memoir, I didn't include any comps, which I normally always do, right? Because it's yeah, part of yeah. the like, you know, positioning this because there wasn't anything that was like comparable, right? And so I know with editors, depending on the category, right? The comps kind of mean everything. And with mm-hmm. memoir, it's nonfiction. And so comps mean right. so much in nonfiction because it's like such a precursor to kind of decide how they're going to position it and how big it is and how big the audience is and and all of that sort of thing. But because it's memoir, it's also, it reads like a novel. You know what I mean? So I was really mm-hmm. hoping that editors were going to see it for exactly, exactly what it was and, and what it is. And with when I pitch any book, you know, I'm asking editors to, to take a chance on something, right? And it's like, you know, please put down every other project you have and like read my clients' books. But I think with BIPOC authors, especially, there's just so much extra care that has to come into the packaging and presentation of how we pitch things because we have to make sure that editors can potentially understand why we don't have comps. So it's it's relying on a lot of, you know, support from the industry to understand what it is we're trying to do and, and help people read between the lines. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay. Next question for you. So I was just talking about how we were at conferences this year, and I'm glad that you know publishing is kind of opening up again, and we're able to do in-person mm-hmm. events, which is so exciting after a few years of not doing anything. And so one of the things you know I think about as well as my clients kind of going out into the world and, and doing events, I kind of wanted to position this this question towards kind of any like conference organizers or event organizers that are listening, and I'd like to maybe hear you talk about ways that you think that conferences or events can really better support authors of color and women of color? Are there any suggestions maybe that you think you could make to help the literary community create more safe places for BIPOC authors? Mm -hmm, Yeah, it's a hard one because I mean, when you go to a conference, right, you're wearing your author tag and it always happens to myself and other, you know, women of color writers that people come up to you in the hospitality suite and ask you, you know, tell you like, you know, this is only for authors. Like you can't be here and you clearly have a tag on. So there's that assumption. And of course, you know, they're horribly embarrassed when they find out you're an author, but it's like, why would you come up to someone who's sitting there and tell them that they don't belong? And so that's something that's always happened to people. Like I know people who go to like even award ceremonies and their name is not even on the list and they're being nominated for award. So I think it's something, I don't think it, Maybe, there's maybe always just some kind of careless mistake, I think, that people, you know, need to really focus on. And also, I think I went to a writing excuses cruise in 2018, and they had this BIPOC hospitality space suite where you could just go there anytime and just sit there. And it was away from the white gaze. And I thought it was really brilliant because you could just, you know, sit there if you were feeling tired or overwhelmed. I mean, I think, you know, that's something, you know, conference organizers can do. I also think, you know, there's this very, I don't know what it is. Sometimes I've always had people ask me if I speak English at conferences and festivals. I've done workshops and people ask me, you know, how are you qualified to teach this class? And you're like, well, you know, you can Google me. And I don't think that happens to white men at all. A lot of it is, I guess, the people who come to conferences But also, I mean, organizers can be more careful about including their BIPOC authors and making sure they feel welcomed and safe. Now, it's so important, so important, especially as we start to, as I said, get out there into the Mm -hmm. the physical space again to kind of promote. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast for a number of reasons, obviously, to promote the new collection, but... You always make my jaw drop and and I'm your agent, which is like, you know, I, I feel like I, I I know a lot about my clients, but every time you send me something, I never know what I'm going to get from you other than the fact that it's going to be really honest and it's going to be funny and it's going to be dark, but it's always so unique. So tell me about, you know, tell our listeners what goes on in that brain of yours when you're switching gears from the memoir to the YA fiction, to the short story collection, to the adult fiction, how does your brain kind of move between all these worlds? I think I don't think about genre at all. I think that's that's a thing I, I think like okay I'm gonna write something and I'm always writing a million projects at a time so it's always in rough draft form and then sometimes when you're like do you have anything ready and I'll like be like oh yeah I feel like doing this today and I'll go back to one of my projects and revise it and then show you but for me it's really about good storytelling and prose right and I'm not thinking about I'm gonna write a horror collection about you know xyz I'm thinking about well what story do I feel like telling right now and you know what's speaking to me and and I guess you know genre and other things I come to you and be like what do you think about this is it too weird you can pull me back because I think I have a tendency to really just sit in my own head and and be like I think this works but I'm not sure why and I hope other people get it so there's always that terrifying feeling when everyone's like you're too weird or it's too dark right 
I never um, tell you anything's so. too weird. I don't know if I've ever told you. I, I know, which is time, great. I think one time I you had too many jokes and something. And I was like, listen, Lindsay, this is, we got to balance the dark and the funny. And I was trying to, you know, rein you in of that balance. But mm-hmm. you, you always get to the balance, you know? And I think that your instincts as a storyteller are so on point because you always think about, I'm going to tell a story and what's the best vessel for that story. You know what I mean? And that's why I think you're able to kind of move through these worlds because you're always thinking about like, what's the best technique, right? Storytelling technique to, to get it done. Prose is prose, right? Yeah. Oh, and that's why you are the teacher as well. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about the difference between working with a smaller publisher and a larger publisher. So you've worked with both so far in your career. Mm-hmm. Do you want to speak a little bit to the differences and how they've served your career differently working with small press versus larger publishers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my first book, The Woo Woo, was with um, Arsenal Pulp Press and they're a great press, small press in um, Vancouver. And it was very, it felt very much like a partnership working with them because they would be like, well, what do you want in your cover? And I said, well, you know, I want a pig, but make it, you know, cute and weird like me. And, and they came up with a pig, right? When working with Simon Schuster, for example, or Penguin Random House, they don't, they ask you like, what do you hate in a cover? And then they surprise you. And it's like, we love it. Here it is. Right. And, and so it, it can be, very, it can be a very different feeling, but I think both are great experiences. I think Arsenal, they'd hired a external publicist. So they put a lot of attention into marketing and, and promoting the book. Whereas I think in a bigger publisher, you can, some authors definitely feel lost. So I'll, I'll see how, I, I mean, I'll see how the short story collection goes, but I definitely did have a really good experience at Simon & Schuster too. The publicist they gave me was really great. Yeah, there's so many pros and cons, right? So mm-hmm. it's so interesting to see how how authors kind of weave through both experiences in their career. So you have spent a lot of time in the literary trenches doing interviews and conferences and promoting your books. I think for the woo-woo, you ended up spending approximately like three years touring that book off and on mm-hmm. and only stopped because of the pandemic. So were you able to write on the road? Are you somebody that can kind of switch those hats? I had to really learn how to do it. I find that when I'm in promoting mode, it's hard for me to write because I feel like for me, the, I think the process is I can write anywhere. It can be, you know, a McDonald's restaurant. It can be a waiting area, a hospital, as long as I'm kind of left alone and I'm not in that chatty social mode. Whereas I think when promote, promoting, you have to be friendly enough to talk to your readers and your organizers, right? So it's a very different hat. And I like to kind of sequester myself in my apartment and not leave the house and be like, I'm just going to write a book and not see anyone. So it's a, it's like, it's almost like wearing, it's very different. So, but I think it's a really good trait to have if you can write and promote because, you know, books have to get done. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's kind of publishing can be a machine at times, right? You're just like chugging Mm -hmm. along with it, getting ready for the, for the next book. So, so you're currently promoting, tell me pleasant things about immortality, the short story collection. So what do you want readers to take away from this experience? It's so chaotic and, you know, consuming and a page turner. What do you hope readers take away from this collection? I hope they kind of view Asian Canadian immigrant story in a different light. I think I'm always, in many ways, I'm always telling that story about diaspora and, and coming to Canada and North America, but I'm hoping they'll be able to, to really relate to a lot of the themes and be able to see that, you know, this is what happens to a group of people, right? And it, and it's a, it's a, I guess we're always telling the same stories, but in this case, I'm telling, you know, a story of horror, right? BIPOC horror. Yeah. And it is an absolute page turner. And so you're also said you're working on something next. Is there anything you want to tell us about you have in the works? 
mm-hmm, I have to write a novel and I'm the title probably change. I'm just calling it The Cursed Bridesmaids of Maxine Marilyn Lurg. And it's about these poor women who end up selling their soul to a demon bride. Yeah, it's based on my own experiences where I happened to be a bridesmaid at a wedding. So someone reached out from high school and I, and I hadn't talked to her for a long time, but she really wanted me to be in her wedding party. And it was a year of indentured servitude. So never be a bridesmaid. It's really bad. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. We are critiquing the the wedding culture and wedding industry next. Yes. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me, Lindsay. I could chat with you all day, but I think the most important thing is everybody goes and buys the collection. Tell me pleasant things about immortality. It's also going to be available in audiobook, which we're very excited about. So get it in whatever format you prefer. Uh, we can't wait to hear what you think about it. So on Twitter at Lindsay M. Wong, on Instagram at lindsaywong.m and check her out online, lindsaywongwriter.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay. Thank you. I'm thrilled to offer podcast listeners an exclusive audio excerpt of Lindsay Wong's short story collection, Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality, narrated by Eunice Wong, Nancy Wu, Garland Chang, and Austin Koo. Listen to the story, The Ugliest Girls, from the collection right now. In my village of Beiji, in the coldest, whitest corner of Heilongjiang province, my hair lip has always been fierce and unapologetic my eyes like misshapen mouse turds. My long, uneven braids dangle like parasites, my mouth pinched like a rotted lotus flower. I have been crowned with the dried leaves of red Manchurian ash trees twice, the dishonor of being one of my village's ugliest girls. My mother and her midwife screamed in astonishment after she birthed me, and my father attempted to snap my newborn neck in the blue Da Xing Anling woods. Afflicted with pity or guilt, he changed his mind. Why didn't you just eat me when I was born? I asked my mother, who was rolling dumpling dough on our rickety kitchen table. The Jungs ate their ugly newborn last week. Your father and I were not starving then, she said, wiping flour off her gray cheng pao. The Yangs are rich, and they ate three girls before one was acceptable looking, I insisted. Well my mother said. I guess your father and I lost our appetites when you were born. That's why we eat our meals separately, and you eat alone in the barn. As one of the ugliest, most misshapen girls in my village, I had been told that I had no future. The brothels did not want me, and even blind men shuddered at the thought of my deformities. It was commonly known that the ugliest girls of the North were worse than average, snaggle-toothed girls with bad skin. That ugliness could be passed around like venereal diseases. You should not sleep with an ugly girl, but you may eat her, was the saying in all our villages. Being ugly was our curse, and perhaps being cooked in a stew when the chickens and pigs and sheep had been eaten was an ugly girl's fate. It all depended on the state of the winter harvests and our family's unpredictable appetite for kindness. After a long, harsh winter which turned our lips blue, the ugly girls and I were preparing to be eaten when government representatives arrived swiftly on strong white horses, clutching imperial red scrolls from the Emperor Tong Zhi himself. An esteemed-looking man, as thin and elite as a calligraphy brush, bowed as he entered the courtyard of our Si He wore a cheng pao of blood-orange silk. 
Is this the residence of an ugly girl? He demanded. My parents, sensing opportunity, bowed quickly and ushered the emperor's representative inside our threadbare ancestral home. As my mother poured oily green tea for us, the representative recited in an official-sounding voice. There are respectable bachelors across the ocean in a faraway place called Gold Mountain. Perhaps you've heard stories of such a dwelling in the West, paved with riches. Our benevolent emperor has sent China's finest sons to acquire this gold and build a vast colony. What our wealthy bachelors require now are proper wives. You will be paid handsomely if you sell your ugly daughter across the sea in service of China. Trying not to look too eager, my mother offered him a generous slice of day-old mung bean cake while my father nudged me to hide my monstrous face in case my presence offended the representative. But he did not seem disgusted because he asked my father if he could have a closer look at me. At the representative's request, I showed him my coarse hands and yellow donkey teeth. He nodded his approval at my flea-eaten skin, even though he was careful not to get too close. My parents clutched each other like prized meat. The representative looked pleased. You are doing China a wonderful and patriotic duty, he said to me, smiling with a blank, superior benevolence. You will be going to a land full of ghosts, Guai, but you will repopulate for the sake of our beloved emperor, won't you? I was stunned. I had never imagined anything for myself. I nodded with what I hoped was acceptable politeness. I felt numb and tongue-tied in his presence. Would I have a future in this land full of frightening ghosts? Would I still be the ugliest thing? The representative sipped our proffered tea and bit into our stale cake. My stomach lurched, hopeful. I wondered if it was possible that a stranger with money and genteel manners might actually want me. My beaming father signed the offered scroll, marking an eager but determined X where his name should be, and in return received three months' wages. It was a large enough sum, able to feed my mother and him on a steady diet of eggs, poultry, and sour vegetables. The representative chatted easily with my father, while my mother helped me pack my only two rutun in a burlap sack. She wrapped a homespun veil over my head to hide my hideousness. Keep your face covered when you meet your new husband, she said, not bothering to pretend that she was sad. My father tried his best to look regretful. He clutched the satchel of coins to his chest, as if praying. Farewell, chicken face, my mother called as I accompanied the representative outside. May your daughters be more fortunate looking than you. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course, 
And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, the phrase think globally, act locally proved too restrictive for today's guest, a family physician in rural Uxbridge, Ontario. She decided to think and act both locally and globally. She founded the Ghana Health Team in 2007, led it until 2019, and has recently been appointed as the Director of International Partnerships and Canadian Consultant for Family and Emergency Medicine at the Liata Hospital in Ghana, West Africa. Still a proud resident of her hometown Uxbridge, where she and her husband have raised their five children, she continues to practice medicine there as both a family and an emergency room physician. She recently returned to school to pursue a master's in public health with a collaborative specialization in global health at the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, where she holds a clinical part-time appointment as lecturer in the Department of Family and Community Medicine. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jennifer Wilson. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. That is a hell of an impressive resume, just to, to kick us all off. And so for our listeners, we are discussing a medical memoir today that was published with a smaller press. It is such a beautiful book and there are photographs in it. And it just, it, it feels really like an intimate portrayal and not something that you will see coming out with bigger publishers who are going to say no to the photographs, who are going to say no to all of these things that Jennifer has included, which an indie press has allowed for because they understand how important this was. So Jennifer, before we dive in, I want to read just the first paragraph to our listeners from your introduction, because it's, it's going to kick off our discussion. You wrote, I've been compelled to write this book for quite a few years now. Many excuses have prevented me from beginning, but the greatest explanation 
is that I am no author. I would much rather treat your allergic reaction or your heart attack than figure out how to write a book. This was not a task for which I had any training, and I feared I would be incapable of doing justice to such important subject matters. Then a series of events unfolded which compelled me to begin my story. So can you just take us through those series of events for our listeners? Well... The biggest event that caused me to get my computer out and start writing this story, which I I knew I needed to write for a number of years, was actually the COVID-19 pandemic. So it was the early days of the pandemic. Sometimes I, I think it's easy to forget how we were all feeling at that time, but it was early days, pre-vaccination options. Our colleagues and patients were dying so quickly and in Europe and in New York City. And I was called in as a part of a leadership team to a care facility in Toronto where most of the residents and staff had COVID. So I was called in as this emergency team to care for these dying patients with COVID. And so in those early days of the pandemic, I really was faced with my own mortality. You know, I'm not someone who fears death. I have a strong faith. But in those days going into that facility, I thought, you know what, there's a a really good chance I'm not going to make it out of this pandemic alive. And so as I was processing that, the emotion around that and just the logistics around that, of course, I had a lot of feelings and emotions, but the big thought in my head was, I really should have written my story. And, you know, because this, this, my story is, is a unique story. It's about healthcare professionals from all over the world fighting for global health and equity. But I, I am really the only one who can tell that story. And so this overarching feeling I had going into that horrific situation was how silly of me to have not gotten this written down because if I die, it's going to die with me. And it will really be a shame that it will not be documented and and part of history, that our experiences and the voices of my colleagues in Ghana will not be down on paper. So that's what got me writing, believe it or not. And I I started writing and writing ferociously because I wasn't sure how how long I'd be around. You know, that's so interesting. And that's something we hear from our listeners so much of the time. And when I chat to people and they find out I'm a writer, you know, in my personal life, they'll say, I've always wanted to write a book and, but I'm just waiting for the right time. And many of these people are now retired. They're in their sixties and you go, okay, but if now is not the right time, when is the right time? And what we can deduce from this is that beginnings are so difficult. It's just sitting down, bum in chair and (laughs) making up your mind and saying, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to commit to it. So, you know, let's talk a bit about that, about beginnings, because I'm sure this must have felt incredibly overwhelming to you when you first sat down to try and decide, okay, I'm not a writer. I don't understand structure. I don't understand, you know, playing around with timelines, etc. But I have this wealth of knowledge and I want to get it down. And so many people would immediately become, you know, incapacitated by this overwhelming thing that they're now facing. So how did you work through that? Well, I noticed on your Instagram post, you often refer to, or I saw something about AIS, you know, get your bum in the seat. And, you know, it's it's just so true. And uh, there's a great quotation by Mother Teresa that I use a lot in global health work. She once said, yesterday is gone. Tomorrow has not yet come. We only have today. 
So let us begin. Let us begin. Let us begin. And I, I really believe for me, my experience was once I made that decision to begin, it wasn't as hard as I thought to begin. Once you sit down and actually realize, okay, I feel very vulnerable right now, but I'm going to start. That was the biggest hurdle for me. And it wasn't just the first beginning. Like I felt that way all the way through the process. Like I, I remember there was one point, I think we were much halfway through the first manuscript and I sat down to do the next chapter I'm like I can't do this like who am I to be writing it well and and my teammates would say well you've you've already written 12 chapters like what's the big deal <laughs> and I'm like it's a I, I just can't do it I can't get started again so it it was a recurring theme for me to just begin and to push, you know, any sense of imposter syndrome away from myself and just start writing. And of course, this would lead me to a, a, another topic, which was is having a team around you. So for me, beginning was very much about forming a team around me who would guide me and encourage me and speak into what I was writing and, and keep me on track and keep me accountable. So having a team around me was a big, big part of the process for me. Okay, so we're going to get to that now. Beforehand, I want to say that I think what it started with for you, and this is what it starts with for so many writers, is giving themselves permission, mm -hmm. saying, I may not be qualified, I may not know what I'm doing, but I'm still going to give myself permission to write this. Because I think imposter syndrome is a huge problem for so many writers. I, I've spoken to authors who've had three New York Times bestsellers and they still have imposter syndrome. So you always think one day that's going to disappear with the success I have and it, it never seems to. Mm, so isn't that interesting? You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, for you and it, it's interesting that it took this really bleak time for you to grant yourself that permission. So let's talk a bit about the team. Who was the team you assembled and, and what did you set up so that you were, were you reporting to them on a weekly basis saying you would give them pages, etc.? How did that work? So I, I'm a team player. I've always been a team player. And so I always knew I wanted a team. I, I, I didn't know if that was the norm when people wrote a book. But for me, I knew I needed that. Teams have always made me brave. And uh, I just love being part of a team and combining skills and gifts. So I had been thinking about the people I would want alongside me for a couple of years. And interestingly, most of them were my patients. So I'm a family physician, I'm an emergency room physician, but I've been practicing family medicine for over 20 years now. And so there were some people in my practice they had read some of my blog posts. So when I traveled to Ghana as part of our healthcare teaching teams and our, our missions, I would often write blogs, like very, very brief blogs, just to send home to the family members of my teammates so they knew we were okay and share some stories and share the experience. And so I had a few patients who had read my blogs and, and had said to me over the years, you know, give me a call, give me a call when you're ready to write your book. And so I started with a team of three people who were authors or teachers who had the skills in writing that I didn't have. One, Julie Fitzgerald is, is an editor for a magazine. She's an author herself, Trish Boykel, who's an, an author, and a great friend of mine who's a high school English teacher. So those three and I met and we mapped out a plan. They decided that one would act sort of as my developmental editor. Trish, who was someone I was in touch with, you know, 
on almost a daily basis, giving first editions to of, of my chapters. And then Julie acted as more of a line editor for me, as well as Brad. They both did the editing once we sort of had a, had a chapter at a time together. So I would work with my developmental editor through, you know, you know, I would try to write every day if I could, didn't always work out that way. And I would, I would send it to her electronically. This was all during the pandemic. So no one was meeting in person. And once we had a chapter, we'd send it to my other two teammates. And then the four of us would decide when that chapter was finished and I would move on. So that's what we did. That's what we worked at. And then, so we developed a first manuscript we rewrote it, second manuscript, and then it was at that point we involved a, a professional editor. I love this whole process, and it's playing to people's <clears throat> strengths as well. You know, so some of our listeners are going to go, well, I don't know editors, and I don't know people who do this, but you'll know people who have attention to detail. You'll have people in your life who are able to proofread, etc. You'll have people who have an understanding of story. And then it creates accountability, because... You know, they're like, Jennifer, where are these pages? We know you can't write every day, but we need these before we can move on. So when you sat down beforehand and you mapped it out, did you all come up together with a chapter by chapter outline of what you wanted to say? Or did they say to you, Jennifer, start at the beginning when you decided for your 37th birthday to go to Ghana and just take us through it in a linear timeline. How did, how did that look? Yeah, that, that's a really fun recollection because at that very first meeting, we, we brainstormed together, you know, so I have this, story. you know, they asked me, they wanted to know for me what was important to me, you know, because this, this is a medical memoir. It's a, it's not my whole life. It's a piece of my life, but to tell the story, I had to tell a little bit of my past. And so we brainstormed about what are the pieces that are important to me? What was my vision for this story? And then what we did together was we we brainstormed how to create this sort of narrative arc. What would work for this? And as I shared with them, you know, the journey, the, you know, this story is about a transformative journey in my life, in the life of my colleagues who came with me to Ghana, and in the life of patients and healthcare providers in Ghana. And I said to them, we need to tell this like a journey. So I appreciate your kind words, Bianca, about my introduction, but you'll notice there's nothing in there about writing, right? Like nothing. I had done, my lowest mark in high school was English, I, I have never done it. I've never been to a book launch. I, I just didn't know this beautiful literary world that I'm now a part of. I didn't know it existed. And it was my team that said, well, you know, if this is a journey, we need to tell the story like a journey. And we started brainstorming about what makes a good story, what makes a good journey. We started talking about things like the hero's journey, which, of course, I knew nothing about. I mean, I know what a hero's journey is. Like I know what a movie is that I love to watch that uses that framework or a book that I read, but I didn't even, I had, to, you know, I'm always Googling these things that my team are, they're saying, okay, Jennifer, you need to research the hero's journey and see how your story might map into that type of an arc. And that's what we used. I had to learn it. I had to research it. And then my story, you know, obviously it, it wasn't exactly like the, the theory, but it gave us a framework. And it always gave me a direction. So I always knew where I was writing towards. And it made it just so fun. You know, it, 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 the, the writing of the book was a journey, a transformative journey in and of itself for me. I love that you've said that because there's two things when it comes to writing a book. We say 
that the character in the book needs to go on a journey. They need to be transformed by this journey they go on, that who they are at the end of the book needs to be different to who they are at the beginning of the book. And I also feel that as authors, we need to be transformed by the things we write. Otherwise, what's the point of them, right? right? And we also say to make memoir sound as much as possible, to have it read like fiction, because memoirs that read like fiction in terms of you're rooting for this character, you see them striving for something, you see obstacles thrown in their path, you see them overcoming obstacles, you see them having a long dark night of the soul, you see them triumphing. These are things that make good story. And these are things that, you know, are in a memoir, because that's what memoir is about. It's about overcoming adversity in your life and being better and stronger because of it. So I love that you approached it in that story focused way. And it definitely came through in the writing. Now, when you have such a team, there is always the risk of your voice getting lost in the voice of the bigger team, right? Especially since they know story perhaps better than you do. So they shared your vision. But how did you protect your voice so that at all times it was your voice coming through? It's such an interesting question. And I actually feel a little emotional listening to you ask that question because it was in the very first meeting with my little team of three. And that team did grow to include others. But that first meeting, I was feeling so vulnerable and thinking, what am I doing? Like, how could I be even having this meeting about starting to write a book, let alone my story? One of the members of my team, it was Brad. He's a little bit quieter and more thoughtful and more introspective. And at the end of the meeting, he said, Jennifer, I think the most important thing we need to do as your teammates on this journey is to make sure we do not alter your voice. So he articulated exactly what you just said, Bianca. And when he said that, it was a statement that just sort of drilled right down into the depths of my soul because I thought, well, first of all, I mean, they know my story. They know my voice. So he actually thinks there's something worth protecting there. You know, it just bolstered me that you know, these brilliant people who know all about literature and writing think I have something to say that's worth protecting. So that came out right at the beginning. And it was something we talked about all of the time because I'm such an amateur and, you know, I just don't know the norms. You know, it would have been very easy for my team to alter my voice, but it was something we were mindful of. They were very mindful of. They refused to, you know, I would say, you know, if I said, oh, I, I can't do it, I can't write about this, you need to help me. They, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't. They'd, they'd encourage me to write it and speak it. And not only did my initial team do that, but Sue Reynolds, who ultimately edited the final manuscript and then made the decision to publish it, she too just she just heard my voice in this story and didn't want it altered. She fiercely protected it. And interestingly, I was with someone just the other day, Bianca, one of my patients, actually, who we would had our, our visit together. And as she was leaving, she told me that she'd read my memoir. And she started to get a little bit emotional. And she said, you know, she said, Dr. Wilson, it's the weirdest thing. But as I was reading this book, it was like you were standing over my shoulder reading it to me. She said, I could actually hear your voice in the pages of this book. And I thought, wow, like how powerful is that? That, a, that words on a page can convey so much and that 
you know, that my story can actually be heard. My voice was really remarkable. So it, it really was a full circle moment for me, I, I suppose, that I think my team and I, we, we did it. We didn't alter my voice, even though I'm a rookie and I'm an amateur and I really don't, you know, you know, my team would say things to me like, oh, that was a great, is it Chekhov? Chekhov's gun. That was a great Chekhov's gun you used. I don't know what that is. I, I, I'd have to Google it. It wasn't intentional. I, I didn't really, I don't know these things, but they allowed my voice to remain authentic throughout. And that was important to me, important to the team and important to the voices I was trying to amplify, which are ultimately the voices of the people in Ghana who this story is about. Yeah, and, and something you said earlier resonated as well is is, is that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, if you do not feel vulnerable as a writer, then I say you are not writing something worth writing mm. because vulnerability comes when you speak your truth. Even in fiction, you can speak your truth very loudly in fiction. I find I can speak my truth most loudly in fiction, but there is vulnerability there as the writer when you are really putting yourself out there emotionally, spiritually, all of it. So yeah, that was, that really resonated as well. So can we talk a bit about your experience of publishing with Sue Reynolds? Mm -hmm. At what point you approached her and what that process looked like? Well, we had gotten to the end of the second, well, I, actually, I would say technically the third manuscript, my my team and I, and I really didn't know what I was going to do with it at that point. You know, I was just busy writing it, and I assumed I would just get someone to help me self-publish it. The, this, this memoir was for my family and my teammates and my friends in Ghana hadn't thought much further. And then one of one of my teammates decided to give Sue Reynolds a chapter of this memoir to read. So one of the things that was important to me was trying to use as many local people on my team. So my editors, you know, the independent bookstore who's selling my book, everyone's local. And Sue is a local publisher, but she's also a professional editor. So she was given it hoping she might have time or be willing to do one last professional edit of our manuscript. That was the intent. And I'm just so grateful that Sue read this one chapter and agreed to edit it for me. So she took this, it was quite polished at that time, like we'd been through it three times. But Sue took it and did something very special with that final manuscript in in, in those of you who know Sue Reynolds will understand but what she helped me do I mean we had all the work we had the format we had the words but what I hadn't learned yet when Sue got a hold of it was this whole concept of learning to trust the reader you know, I'm a mother of five. I, I'm a physician. I'm always giving commentary on everything, right? I'm guiding, I'm coaching, I'm mentoring. I'm, I'm always telling people what I, what I think is best for them, rightly or wrongly. But I, you know, there's so many themes in this book that I want my readers to care about. I want them to care about poverty and injustice and, and inequity and colonialism. I want them to care about these things. And so in these chapters, there was still commentary of mine. Not much because my initial team cut so much of that out, but there were still bits of it. I hadn't fully trusted or let go of trying to control how my reader would respond to what I had written. 
And I think that's one of the biggest things Sue did was she removed those those hidden, a lot of them were hidden, they were subtle commentaries and simplified it to a point where we found a good balance between what I had to explain, but trusting the reader and allowing them to experience it in the way that was right for them. So then during that process, Sue offered to publish this book for me. And so her publishing company, Pecan Press, published it. We have a local printer in our community who printed it. And then our local bookstore, Blue Heron Books, our independent bookstore, agreed to be my bookseller. And and I knew I knew right from the beginning I wanted to try to do all my sales through our local bookstore as opposed to any other way. And so a lot of our marketing has been trying to get people to purchase it through our local bookstore. And not only that, but your book was their top selling book last year. So Blue Heron Books, Shelley Macbeth, I'm a huge fan of the <laughs> bookstore. I'm a huge fan of Shelley's. And, you know, there were some huge books that came out last year and your book beat all of them in terms of sales. And that to me is just amazing because it speaks to the power of community. It speaks to the power of an author finding their audience, you know, because that is our biggest worry as, as authors. Mm. I'm going to write this. Will anyone want to read it? Mm. And you, you know, you had this whole community come out in support and like like you say, you supported Blue Heron in return. But, you know, when Chili told me that yours was the best-selling book for them, I was just absolutely blown away. That must have felt really rewarding. Well, it's, it's a little bit, I, I, I still can't believe it, to be honest. And, you know, it's still selling. Like, I just got a message from Shelly and Megan. They needed another case of books today. So I'm so happy. I'm so happy that especially that sales have gone so well for them. We've tried, you know, we are on Amazon and Kindle, but we've tried to minimize our, our promotions through them. And, and in fact, I think we're almost up to a thousand books sold at Blue Heron and about a hundred online. So it's 10 times the sales have gone through Shelley, which I'm thrilled for supporting my local bookstore. And, and in fact, we intentionally made a decision that the addition with color photos, which I know doesn't really make sense because it's more expensive, but it was part of my vision. I, I can't tell my story without the colors and fabrics of Africa, but our online book is black and white and they're the same price. So that was part of my strategy to hope that people would order through Shelly because she'll ship everywhere. Even all our colleagues in the UK order through her and she ships them over. So I'm, I'm so happy. It's been a really lovely thing for our community. I feel really humbled to realize that this story of me and my friends and and, and my colleagues and patients in Ghana are impacting others in so many different ways. I'm fascinated by that, how someone will tell me the impact that the book has had on them. And it, it's just different for everyone. So it has been surprising and overwhelming. And I still feel that imposter syndrome constantly creeping in. But I've learned, you know, we just we just have to embrace that and have a little perhaps have a little bit of a sense of humor around our imposter syndrome and, and carry on, right? Like what else I, do you do? I, I regularly say that I have a muzzle for mine. Yeah. When mine when mine gets too loud, I muzzle it and then I'll let it out again after the fact. And mm. you know, the book resonates with people because it's about humanity. It's it's about what connects us mm -hmm. as opposed to what makes us different. And that's really what taps in 
to people. And, you know, I think I was the second or third best-selling author at Blue Heron Books. And Jennifer, I couldn't imagine losing to anyone else I'd rather lose to. So again, congratulations. Our time is up. I don't know how the heck that happened. For our listeners, if you want this book, and it is absolutely amazing, please Look up Blue Heron Books, order it directly from them. I'm sure you'll get a signed copy. I'm sure Jennifer has signed all the stock there and Shelley will ship it. And we wish you, you know, much success with this. And we hope that that imposter (laughs) is going to be muzzled and, and that you will write more. Bianca, I want to thank you so much. This has been delightful. And I hope your listeners will not only buy my book from Shelley, but that they'll buy your book too. And she can just ship them both along. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another comps segment with your favorite book person in the world and mine too, Emily Summer of East City Bookshop. Emily, welcome to the show again. Thank you so much. I'm always happy to be here. We love having you. Do you have you ever had listeners in the store coming to say hi or not yet? We actually had one. There was one listener who emailed me because she was going to be in DC and wanted to stop by the store. And it was when we were closed for inventory. So I was so sad to miss her. So if anybody does visit and pops in, please ask for me sometimes in our back office. But I would love to say hello to people in person. Amazing. That would be so awesome. Okay, so let's kick it off. Here is our first request. 
I'm looking for help for my novel, Friend Comp Titles. The way I describe my book is a Jamie Beck novel goes out drinking with Daniel Drell's Winter's Bone. So this one, I had a little trouble with the recording. The Winter's Bone mention made me think of a few writers that you are probably already on your radar. Some have newer and older books, but I would look at Bonnie Jo Campbell. I don't think she has anything recent, but something was just giving me strong Bonnie Jo Campbell vibes. And I would also take a look at the books of David Joy and Wiley Cash, who write very setting-specific, vivid suspense novels. And the Ozark setting of this one made me think of some of the Appalachian settings of David Joy and Wiley Cash. For specific comps, especially with the theme of strong women, family secrets, all of these things, I thought about Shiner by Amy Jo Burns, which is a beautiful literary fiction novel that talks about generations of strong women. It also has a very strong sense of place, deals with family secrets, toxic domestic situations. There, it, There's a suspenseful angle to that story, and I loved it. That one is just a couple of years old, and I think Amy Jo Burns has something in the works. I hope so, because I loved this first book of hers. And a forthcoming novel, a mystery called The Good Ones by Polly Stewart, might also be interesting. So that one is like very readable, very commercial and appealing, but has a strong feminist slant at how do we cover the stories of missing women and has someone returning to her home to deal with sort of a lingering question of a of a missing friend. So the plots might not be exactly the same, but I feel like the themes would work. Wonderful. I love David Joy. I think his first novel, Where All the Light Tends to Go, has just been made yeah. into a film with Robin Wright Penn and who was Angelina Jolie's first husband? Johnny Lee Miller. Oh no, Billy Bob Thornton. That, Billy that's Bob what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. So that's a film that's going to be coming out soon. Okay, the second one. Hello. I am looking for comp titles for my literary suspense novel set in Iceland that follows a single mother who gets dragged into and eventually implicated in a cold case investigation involving the disappearance of a young girl she knew as a child. The protagonist has no memory of what happened during her last moments with the girl who disappeared, and she has always feared that she is to blame. Folklore and mythology feature in the novel, but it still remains very grounded in reality. I would say it's like Tana French's In the Woods meets Eowyn Ivy's The Snow. No Child or Taya Obret's The Tiger's Wife, but those novels are too old to comp. I recently read some promo material for Rebecca Mackay's new novel, I Have Some Questions for You, which will be released at the end of February and shares with my novel the the aspect of unearthing secrets and crimes of the past, but I haven't read the book, so I don't know if it's truly an appropriate comp. Do you have any other ideas? Thank you. Tana French meets A.O. and Ivy's The Snow Child and Taya Obrecht's The Tiger's Wife. But our submitter was concerned that those were too old. So I think those are such strong, vivid comps that I, I feel like they are spot on. I immediately, with the mention of The Snow Child and The Tiger's Wife, I get those strands of folklore and mythology. I get the cold setting. And with the Tana French, I get the feeling of literary suspense. So I think that's wonderful. And I think she's on the right track. She mentioned wondering if the new Rebecca Mackay, which comes out on Tuesday, I have some questions for you, might be right. And I have read that book. It is outstanding. It is just as good as Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers, although it's completely different in story and plot and tone. 
I would say though that that one is very grounded in reality. It's very contemporary. It's a a podcast host. It's got a true crime angle. So it's missing that Icelandic setting and the the themes of folklore and mythology that are woven throughout to better capture what I am guessing are the the setting vibes. I might suggest looking at Lydia Fitzpatrick's Lights All Night Long which came out in, I think, 2019. And it is sort of a dual mystery set in a remote Russian town in a uh, Louisiana town where a boy from Russia has moved to be an American exchange student. But the Russian part is a very strong, suspenseful mystery. And the, the town in Russia is as much a character as the rest of the story. And I would also suggest Julia Phillips' Disappearing Earth. That's also Russia, not Iceland. But I think it captures that sort of cold, remote vibe that might work. So I would look at those. But I think that the the ones that she mentions are absolutely fantastic. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, let's go to number three. Hi, I'm looking for comp help for my 39,000 word middle grade fantasy, Goblin Pass. A retelling of George MacDonald's classic, The Princess and the Goblins, as a fast-paced adventure, it's single POV, third-person close, set in a vaguely medieval world with fantastical creatures but no magic. My story is about a 12-year-old princess who has grown up hidden away from the rebellions in her country. When she's summoned home by her father for the first time, she is captured by goblins. A peasant, the son of rebels, helps her escape, and she forms an unlikely friendship with the rebel family. Goblins pursue her there and burn down the family's homestead. The princess must outrun the goblins, hide her identity, and reach her father on foot. But when she arrives at the castle, she doesn't find the safety she expected. Her kidnapping wasn't accidental. It wasn't an act of war by the goblins. It was planned by her own father. I'm considering Lark and the Wild Hunt by Jennifer Adam and The False Prince by Jennifer Nielsen, although it's older and I don't have an unreliable narrator. Thanks so much for any help you can give on this one. I love that your listeners, Bianca, are already so in tune with what we're doing that they are suggesting their own comps. That makes my job easier, much easier, because it tells me where they're already thinking. So to add to Lark and the Wild Hunt and the False Prince, I would look at The Beatrice Prophecy by Kate DiCamillo. So that's all. also has a medieval setting. It has a real sense of adventure. A young girl is a very strong central character. She's adventuring through the woods and it's a survival story. And that's Kate DiCamillo's most recent. So that one is recent enough that I think it would be a wonderful suggestion. I would also mention now this Kelly Barnhill is such a superstar and such an award winner. You know, we don't want to aim too high, but I think that the Ogress and the Orphans is also a really good comp for this. That's Kelly Barnhill's latest middle grade. And that one also in in the same way that we are sort of reconsidering the goblins, it sounds like in this middle grade fantasy, Kelly Barnhill raises questions about whether the Ogress is really problematic, or maybe she has been demonized and she's looking at who has the power, who's telling the story. Can we trust what we've been told by the powers that be? So I would look at both of those. Amazing. Wow. It's it's so wonderful to see these kinds of themes being tackled in middle grade fiction, right? I know. I know. It's outstanding. Okay. Let's move to number four. Hello. I'm looking for comps for my upmarket book club or women's fiction novel. I'm currently using fans of Jonathan Tropper and Emma Straub as tone comps, voicey but accessible with lots of witty humor, but I'd love a specific book or two to be able to include. Thank you. Cassidy grew up in Vegas playing in illegal poker games orchestrated by her mother, and after seeing the worst in people, she turned her back on humanity. 
She's obsessed with her job as the director of a tiger and lion sanctuary, but the city is threatening to shut it down. She goes against everything she learned growing up to get a much-needed money from the high-stakes poker game, but she gets in too deep and can't cope with the blackmail bureaucracy and heartbreak. Realizing she'll never be able to avoid the looming jail time alone, Cassie does the one thing she swore she'd never do ask her mother for help. In this story of acceptance and redemption, Cassidy discovers that she can't control everything and that learning to rely on others just might be the only way to save her sanctuary and herself. Thanks so much. Okay. So again, our our listener has very helpfully suggested similar authors in tone. So when you say Jonathan Tropper and Emma Straub, I immediately know the feeling that I'm going to get reading this book. So I think that those are wonderful writers to mention. Voicey, strong, funny, very readable. So I was trying to think of something that might capture the Vegas theme, the poker games, and the only, the thing that came to my mind, and it's a little bit older, but it's an excellent Vegas book, is We Are Called to Rise by Laura McBride. And that's a book that I've had customers tell me really gets Vegas right. So maybe look at We Are Called to Rise just in terms and see if any of the Vegas poker part feels right. But I think you're right on the right track with Jonathan Tropper and Emma Straub. Wonderful. Okay, number five. Hello, I have written a YA romance with a queer protagonist and an asexual love interest who's still figuring everything out, kind of questioning at the beginning. And I have figured out most of the comps. They're in a band trying to make it big, so I've chosen Kiss and Tell, and it goes like this. There's social media involved, so Don't Read the Comments by Eric Smith is like spot on, but it's also a little bit older, as is the perfect, perfect comp in my mind, that would tackle the asexuality and questioning sexuality angle, which is Tash Hart's Tolstoy by Catherine Ormsby. But that's from 2017. An alternative would be Loveless by Alice Oseman, but tonally it doesn't fit. Story-wise, it doesn't really fit. It's significantly darker. So if you have any recommendations in the way space, it doesn't need to be romance necessarily, but contemporary about asexuality, I would be so grateful. Okay, again, we've got wonderful comp suggestions that really help me with in terms of tone and the plot. The one that I will I will add since we're looking specifically for YA with ace representation and ace love interest, I would suggest Aces Wild by Amanda DeWitt. So that is a group of ace students. It's a heist novel. Maybe the heist aspect of it, which is sort of, you know, a group this group working together will somehow parallel the kids in the band in our work in progress. But that's the YA ace representation that's worth considering. Awesome. Okay, number six. Good morning. I'm a longtime fan of the podcast looking for comp titles for my contemporary psychological thriller with commercial and upmarket appeal. The main character is a pathologist in the prime of her career with a devoted husband and two sons. Her world is suddenly upended when she finds a stack of love letters addressed to her husband. The letters dredge up a terrible secret from her past and upend everything about her marriage she took for granted. But the letters are just the beginning and hint at something much more sinister. Okay, I think almost every episode, someone has a domestic drama, domestic suspense, and I suggest Laura Dave's The Last Thing He Told Me. So I will not let another episode go by without upholding that tradition, and I will mention Laura Dave's The Last Thing He Told Me. I also really like Amy Malloy's books, and her Good Night Beautiful, it's not going to be the same plot, but I think it captures that same domestic suspense vibe, a very readable psychological contemporary thriller. And 
maybe the books of Jennifer Hillier. I think that our writer mentioned a Karen Slaughter title because of the pathologist. I would look at all of Karen Slaughter's. I think she's an excellent comp too. And yeah, but I would look at Amy Malloy specifically. Awesome. Patricia Cornwell also did a lot of pathologist books, right? Yes. Yes. That's a good one too. I forget but, about her, but, but maybe yes, Yeah, maybe they're a little bit old, but certainly worth reading. Okay, let's go to number seven. Hello, you wonderful women. I'm seeking comps for my memoir, Chasing Light, with the tagline, an agnostic ex-pastor on the hunt for God in a small RV with two big dogs. What could go wrong? I left ministry and church with an already faltering faith. Then after working for a DV and rape crisis agency and losing both elderly parents, the last shred of the faith I'd preached, the faith that carried me through the deaths of a sister, my infant son, and two failed marriages evaporated. Overcome with despair, I drove away from my small town in the North Carolina mountains, seeking traces of the divine. Along the way, I had to make peace with grief, aging, and painful memories of trauma. Only then could I be open to experiencing the sacred in new ways. Comps I've thought of are Sarah Santilla's Breaking Up with God and Seleka Juad's Between Two Kingdoms, as well as the one I'm not supposed to say, Cheryl Strayed's Wild. Thank you for any suggestions you may have. So I love it when we already know the title of our books, because then I feel like I can look forward. Of course, titles change, but I feel like I can look forward to seeing a book on the shelf and and recognize the, the title and thinking, oh, we talked about this on the podcast. So for Chasing Light, I had already written down Between Two Kingdoms before our listener mentioned it. So I think absolutely Between Two Kingdoms sounds like the most spot on comp, and I would use that. Because we we have the mention of grief and death and child death, I would mention Emily Rapp Black's The Still Point of the Turning World, which is the most beautiful memoir I have ever read of a child's a young child's death. It's worth reading if you can stomach it just because it's such an incredible book. I would also mention Ariel Levy's The Rules Do Not Apply, which I think I've mentioned in the past. And in terms of sort of struggling with religion, this book is forthcoming and it doesn't have the sort of journey quest hitting the road to figure things out, but it is the story of a person of faith grappling with what that means today. And it's um, a neighbor and friend of mine, John Ward, has a book coming out called Testimony. And it's about his childhood growing up in an evangelical specifically church and then grappling with it as he grows up and as he sees the face of evangelism changing in America. So I want to shout out John's book, even if it's not a specific comp, but Between Two Kingdoms, that's the one for this one. Awesome. Okay, next one. Hi, my name's Emily, and I'm looking for comps for my debut middle grade novel. Set in the early 90s, George meets Lloyd when he moves to a new town and immediately decides that Lloyd is the weird kid. His suspicions are confirmed by his new soccer teammates, Eric and Drew, who make fun of Lloyd for living in a funeral home. When Eric and Drew vandalize the funeral home, George is blamed and forced to spend the rest of his summer cleaning up the damage they caused. George finds some relief in being away from his own house, however, since he blames himself for his mother's ever-present depression. Through his work in the funeral home and a developing friendship with Lloyd, George learns about finding his own place and worth in his family. Currently, Gary Schmidt's OK For Now is the best comp that I have, but that book was published in 2011. My novel matches the voice of the unhappy slash defensive narrator who addresses the reader directly. Any comps that have to do with a funeral home setting, grief and depression, or a voicey narrator would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for the amazing service you are offering. I loved hearing about Lloyd and George and the funeral home. I immediately had 
vibes of the Macaulay Culkin, Anna Klumsky, My Girl, the movie My Girl. Not that you need to mention My Girl, but that was, I love that movie. So I have very a very fond recollection and connection immediately. This listener mentioned Gary Schmidt, who I had already written down. I think that's an excellent comp in terms of tone, it sounds like, and themes for the specific request of a middle grade book dealing with grief and depression and a really voicey narrator. The first one is The Remarkable Journey of Coyote Sunrise by Dan Geminhart. I actually don't know if his last name is Gemin, pronounced Geminhart or Geminhart, but The Remarkable Journey of Coyote Sunrise is probably my favorite middle grade novel, maybe of all time, certainly of the last five years. And I would also look at The Miscalculations of Lightning Girl by Stacey McAnulty, but Coyote Sunrise is really the one that is specifically dealing with a child feeling guilt, a child dealing with their grief, a parent's grief and depression. And it's just a beautiful book. Thank you, Emily. Okay. Are we on number nine now or number eight? Number nine. Halfway. Okay. Hi, I'm seeking comp help for my middle grade fantasy adventure. 11-year-old Lara longs to become a knight, but when her best friend is the one the prophecy said would end the war, she has no choice but to tag along and help her gentle friend outwit a tricky gnome and a hungry octopod while staying a step ahead of the king's men who are determined to stop them from stopping their war. In this modern fairy tale with elements of uh, in this modern fairy tale with elements of horror and themes of friendship, family, courage and the realities of war. Okay, I feel like sometimes it seems like our episodes go with themes and I feel like this is a, a very strong episode for middle grade fantasy, which is not my strong suit. I am a contemporary adult literary fiction expert, if anything. But I love hearing about these wonderful children's books that are in the works. So for this middle grade fantasy adventure, I would suggest looking at two recent books, The Troubled Girls of Dragomir Academy by Anne Ursu. So that's a fantasy adventure. It's friends who are solving the problem. There is plenty of magic. There's a terrifying force that's sort of threatening their home and their world. I think that's a really good one for this. I would also suggest one of our East City Bookshop favorites. This was a favorite of our previous children's buyer, Cecilia Cackley, who knew more about, still still does. She's still there. She's just not with us anymore. She knows more about children's books than anybody. And Cecilia loved The Gauntlet by Karuna Riazzi. And again, this is like a high stakes friends middle grade book. The friends are saving each other. It's a very high stakes, fun adventure. This one is more like Jumanji than medieval fantasy, but I think it might capture the same audience. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, let's go to number 10. Hi, thanks for this amazing podcast and all the resources you guys put out there. I'm looking for comms for my adult thriller. It's dual POV and centers around two sisters who try and cover up an accidental murder after a night of partying. They use their skills from their flawed past to hide the evidence, but the father of the deceased uses his money and influence to have them followed, and eventually the two are kidnapped. My movie comps are Good Girls and Why Women Kill. There's some family drama mixed with some dark comedy aspects as well. Thanks for any suggestions. I love a sibling story and I love an adult thriller. And for strong-voiced sisters mysteries with a, a hint of comedy or a hint of like a like a snarky, funny voice, if that is what we're looking at here, I thought of two great sibling mysteries. The Better Liar by Tannen Jones. And Janelle Brown's most recent, I'll Be You, which is sort of the Olsen twins meets the Nexium cult. But it's it's a strong sibling story. And both of those, I think, capture that sister mystery. 
Wonderful. Okay, next one. I'm looking for comps for my manuscript. Sixteen Stories is an 89,000-word narrative nonfiction generational saga of my own family. The throughline is exploring my family history to better understand and come to terms with my mother's suicide when I was four years old. Written in the third person, each of the 16 chapters focuses on a different person, myself, my brother, our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. The book begins in 2015, goes back to 1895, and then keeps jumping forward 20 years at a time until it concludes in 1995. It follows characters as they immigrate from China and Poland to San Francisco and New York and move to Oakland, Reno, and Los Angeles. One of my great-grandfathers was one of the first Chinese-American millionaires, but this family fortune was squandered in three generations. The other half of the family is Jewish and worked its way up from the garment industry to my father, who is a doctor. Possible comps include The Interpreter's Daughter by Teresa Lim, Stepping Back from the Ledge by Laura Trujillo, and The Old Drift by Namwali Serpel. Thanks so much for your help. So for 16 stories, I loved hearing about this one because our caller describes it as narrative nonfiction. And I think that, of course, is is right. But this strikes me as a book that really mixes genre. It sounds like we've got, you know, narrative nonfiction talking about the Chinese-American experience, a Jewish family in the garment district. But it's also a family history. It also sounds like it has aspects of memoir since we're dealing with the writer's mother's suicide And because of that sort of blend of nonfiction genre, I thought of two specific books. The first is Sinkhole by Juliet Patterson. And that also deals with a mother's suicide, but takes a wider look at suicide in general, at the place where they live, and is not specifically only a one character memoir. I also think it would be worth looking at Ancestor Trouble by Maud Newton, which blends family history with, again, like larger narrative nonfiction. In this case, it's epigenetics and race, but it's it's sort of a blend of memoir, family history, narrative nonfiction, which I think is so unique. And so I love that I love that this caller has this project in the works. Awesome. Okay, number 12. Hi, I'm seeking comp recommendations for my 60,000 word middle grade fantasy with the historic setting of 11th century Cuban roots. So 12 year old Nina, an impulsive Rusalka, also known as a water nymph, lies and break mama's number one rule in order to venture beyond her all-female settlement at the bottom of a lake. When her seemingly harmless exploration of the above takes a dark turn, her best friend gets nymphnapped by a group of royal guards have strict orders to eliminate all magical beasts in the kingdom, Rusalki included, Nina has no choice but to elicit the help of two human boys, the very creatures she has been taught to avoid her whole life. The tone of this novel is very upbeat and humorous, so I was thinking maybe the Pandava series or the Inquisitor's Tale for the voice and tone, then Luca for the fish out of water trope, and then Catherine Arden's The Bear and the Nightingale for the Slavic angle. But I'm not sure, so thank you so much for your help. I appreciate it. Okay, so as I said, middle grade fantasy is not my strong suit, and the the nymphs and the human boys really threw me, but I think it sounds absolutely delightful, and I love that our caller already mentions the Inquisitor's Tale, the Bear and the Nightingale. Y'all really are figuring out your own comps. I mean, it's fantastic. So the one that I will add to that and to capture the upbeat and humorous tone is The Train to Impossible Places by P.G. Bell. And I mentioned that one because it is whimsical, it is funny, and I think it will capture that sort of like sweet, fun spirit that it sounds like this fantasy has. Thank you, Emily. Okay, next one. 
I'm seeking additional comps for my midlife coming of age memoir, A Decade of Dieting. In the same vein as Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should See Someone, but from the bird's eye view of a dietitian helping clients navigate the murky world of food in a body-obsessed society, this book includes a high-strung bride who's crash-dieted for her wedding, a mom of three daughters whose own mom took her to Weight Watchers at age 16, and a graduating high school senior and aspiring athlete struggling with comparing her body and diet to social media influencers. The protagonist is on a parallel emotional roller coaster, advising clients to cultivate mindful eating skills while experiencing her own body changes during the inevitable aging process and simultaneously letting go of the tight reins of diet culture that were praised and celebrated by family, friends, clients, and random strangers. I binge the shit while walking my dog, and I'm forever grateful for finding you lovely ladies who are literally the good shit in my life. Thank you. Okay. I love the idea of Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, but about diet culture. I think this is brilliant, so timely, so necessary. So absolutely use the Lori Gottlieb comp. I think that's perfect, especially because it's it's both the, you know, in that one, it's the therapist story and it's the story of her patients and her clients. So it sounds like this, we have at its center, a dietitian, but then we also have the story of her patients and clients. So I think that's a perfect comp. I will add to that Katie Storino's nonfiction book, Body Talk, because anytime people talk about toxic diet culture and reclaiming body positivity, I think about Katie Storino. If you do not follow her on Instagram, she is fantastic. She is one of my favorite strangers on the internet. I just love her, even though I do not know her at all. And then I'll also suggest the brand new memoir. It came out this year by Rabia Chowdhury, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom. So that's her memoir of growing up with very mixed messages surrounding her body and cultural expectations. And I think that that's a a really good one to mention as well. Sounds awesome. I'm adding that to my list. Okay. Number 14. Hi everyone, I'm looking for comps my work in progress, a contemporary romanticy gender swap fairy tale retelling of Grimm's Yorinda and Yorindel. It's about small town waitress Lexi, who after her parents' death becomes the main carer for her younger brother and never deals with her own grief. When a now 18-year-old brother goes missing, Lexi learns magic is real and a dark fairy has kidnapped him and turned him into a bird, keeping him captive in her castle. Lexi goes on a journey to save her brother from the fairy, accompanied by an annoying yet attractive axe-wielding fighter who is definitely more magic than human. As they venture towards the castle with many hijinks adventures, Lexi's feelings for her companion move from loathing to liking, even if he is hiding his real reason for accompanying her. The dark fairy is also suffering from grief, so there are parallels between the hero and the antagonist. My current comps are Neil Gaiman's Stardust for The Secondary World and Enemies to Lovers, CJ Redwine's A Shadow Queen for The Hero Journey, and Naomi Novik's Uprooted for the setting, but I'd really like a fantasy book dealing with grief and caring for your siblings no matter what. Thank you so much for your time, and I love the podcast. So again, it's like a high fantasy episode for this one. I love a sibling story, as I've said before. So I love that the stakes in this are that she's she's trying to save her brother and caring for her brother. Our caller specifically asked for a fantasy book about grief or caring with sibling, caring about their siblings. So one older one that I thought of immediately is Caraval by Stephanie Garber. So that might be too old, but I would take a look at it because that's very much a sibling in peril story. The fantasy book about grief that I would mention is more recent, and it's The Astonishing Color of After by Emily XR Pan. That is not about a sibling, but is about our main character's grief at losing her mother. It is not as much a traditional fantasy as it sounds like 
the work in progress is, but it does have plenty of magical, um, mystical imagery. There's a little bit of a romance with a friend. Tonally, this one is pretty serious, but I think since she's looking for specifically a book about grief, this is one I would recommend taking a look at for sure. Amazing. Okay, second last one. Thank you, ladies in advance, for your wonderful insights. I've been reading a ton of cult books looking for a comp, but most are demonic or grisly, which is not my vibe. My manuscript, Pink Marble, is like if the new season of The White Lotus took place on a trendy yoga retreat on a Mexican beach. Sequoia Sky is a spiritual leader and influencer who is marrying her much younger acolyte. As guests arrive for the wedding, the inner workings of the cult begin to be revealed. When someone ends up dead, it's a race to uncover what secrets Sequoia has been hiding. Told from multiple points of view, Pink Marble is chiefly focused on how people become ensconced in a cult. I would like to comp a Lucy Foley book to capture the murder mystery elements and the high stakes reveals, but wonder if her, her books are too successful. Otherwise, I would like to comp The Girls by Emma Klein from 2016 for its introspective and literary elements, but it's too old. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Okay. White Lotus on a yoga retreat in Mexico. I'm in. I love the White Lotus. Um, it makes me want to start singing the White Lotus theme song, but I will I will spare you. I won't try to whistle it. Come on, um, Emily. <laughs> you won't have me back if it your volume down, but you all know it. You can you can hear it. So our caller mentioned Lucy Foley. I don't know if I would mention Lucy Foley. Not because I think she's too successful, although she is certainly a best-selling author and and one of our highest mystery sellers in the store. But when I hear Lucy Foley, I think of sort of a more traditional locked room like Agatha Christie style mystery, and I don't know that it gives the White Lotus culty vibes. So I might, but you know, you know your tone better. I have not read your work in progress. But I would say no to Lucy Foley just because I think tonally that it just doesn't feel quite right based on what you described. The Girls by Emma Klein, I love that. That tells me that, you know, there is a really strong like literary fiction line here. Perhaps it's too old, although what is time? Like I feel like the older I get, the, the girls I still think of as like a very recent book. I would also suggest You're Invited by Amanda Jayatissa because it captures sort of wedding mystery set around a wedding vibes. So that one, a woman returns home to Sri Lanka because her ex-best friend is marrying her ex-boyfriend. So immediately you're like, why is she going back? Don't go. (laughs) Your ex-best friend is marrying your ex-boyfriend. Don't go. Then the bride goes missing and we have to figure out what happens. I love that. So I feel like for wedding resort vibes, that's one to look at. It's also just like a cracking good read. So I recommend it to everybody. For more White Lotus like retreat vibes, I will throw out The Pink Hotel by Liska Jacobs. Anytime someone is like, what do I read if I like White Lotus? That is a suggestion. And then specifically when we're talking about like literary fiction that's dealing with cults, I would suggest The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan, which is slightly more recent than The Girls by Emma Klein. Um, I think The Incendiaries is 2018. And it's looking at just fanaticism and sort of how do we learn to believe what we believe in the through the lens of one young man and one young woman. For more specifically cult vibes, I would look at Godshot by Chelsea Beaker, which is even more recent. That's from 2020. And then I also think there's just some really good nonfiction out there about cults. And I'm sure this caller has probably already read these or is 
very familiar with them, but I will mention them just for our listeners. Sarah Berman wrote Don't Call It a Cult about Nexium, which I've already name checked once. I was very into The Vow <laughs> and other cult docuseries. I will also suggest Slonim Woods 9 by Daniel Barbin Levin. And that one is about the Sarah Lawrence cult and does look in like at specifically at how do people join like people who you would never suspect would would join a cult like how could they get swept up in something like this and then i'm sure everybody is probably familiar with cultish by amanda montel who's a linguist i think but that's another one that just that that talks about cults in general in all kinds of ways soul cycle a cult i love but i would i would suggest all of those as nonfiction background or just very enjoyable reads I love that you've ranked the cults that you love, Emily. This is awesome. Awesome. I love a cult. Love a serial killer. It sounds bad, but you all know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Here's our last one. I would love your help with comps. My literary science fiction novel, Intelligent Life, follows Sendak, a man who finds himself stuck on a hostile alien world as he attempts to escape the planet before an imminent extinction event. But Sendak is not human, and the planet he must flee, roiled by climate change inequality and domestic terrorism, is Earth. Along the way, Sendak discovers a truth that could save his civilization from its own existential struggle, if only he can make it home. The novel is also the tale of the friends and allies who help Sendak along the way, including a pair of sentient AIs who might be falling in love, and the young personal assistant to the billionaire owner of a private space company. These disparate threads unfold from six POVs, three of which are epistolary, and slowly converge. Beta readers have compared the manuscript to All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. The sweetly funny characters might appeal to fans of Becky Chambers, while the touches of hard science and philosophy may appeal to fans of Lu Zhishun's The Three-Body Problem. Okay, our last one. I love the twist of this, that we've got Sendak, who's in this hostile alien world, and it's earth. I get chills just hearing that. I think that the mentions of Charlie Jane Anders, Becky Chambers, and the three-body problem are excellent. I would go with all of those. To that, I will add Blake Crouch, who is probably my, not probably, he is definitely my favorite sci-fi author in part because I don't read a ton of sci-fi, but I still have to know about it to sell it and buy it in the store. And I would also suggest Ted Chang because I think nobody writes like very, very smart cerebral, challenging sci-fi the way that Ted Chang does. And it sounds like this is dealing with, you know, high questions about artificial intelligence, climate change. So I would suggest Ted Chang. I also am going to throw out a realistic fiction book that might not have any similarities because this is, like I said, it is realistic literary fiction. But Silas House's book, Lark Ascending, is set in a near future, um, maybe 15 or 20 years in the future. It's very much our world, but I thought of it because in Lark Ascending, Earth has also been ravaged by climate change, inequality, domestic terrorism, and the main character of Lark is saved through the love of friends and allies. So I think thematically, there's probably a lot to recognize there, and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous masterpiece of a book, and I want more people to read it. Emily, as per always, thank you so, so much. The enthusiasm you bring to this segment every month just makes me so incredibly happy. And it just fills my to-be-read pile with so many more books. And I know we keep getting tweeted and we keep getting tagged with people saying, thank you, Emily, for adding to our to-be-read piles. So we appreciate it. That is what I'm on this earth to do, is to tell people, preach the good word about great books. So thank you for giving me a platform. 
And for our listeners, please support East City Bookshop in any way you can. They do ship, so you can shop online there. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.